Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Excited to be here with you. Pardon my throat. I have a little bit of tea up here in case I need it. Uh, Tis the season, I guess. And so uh, my name is Corey again, uh, one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor here for the next uh, couple of weeks. And so I'm excited to open up the book of Hebrews for you. If you're new to Heights uh, or if you come recently, you might have hit us on a few different series on the front end of the year, but we typically camp out uh, in just a book or two throughout the year, just kind of preach line by line uh, throughout a book until we're done. And so uh, today, we are second week in this about, of about 16 to 18 weeks that we're going to spend uh, in the book of Hebrews. And so if you're uncertain as to what to read, I would say read the book of Hebrews. If you don't know what's happening, we'll do our best to explain it to you on a weekend. You can talk about it in your missional community. And so the book of Hebrews uh, was written to correct some bad theology or some bad angelology, which is actually a word. And so he's writing then to, to kind of correct the way that the culture is beginning to infiltrate uh, the church during that time. And so there was this cultural narrative that was taking place that was telling the Christians of the time that you could have Jesus, you could believe in Jesus, you could say you've experienced Jesus, you can have Jesus as your Savior, you can have him as your personal Savior, you just can't have Jesus as Lord. But you can have him in all the supernatural entity outside of this world that he is, but you cannot have him as Lord. You can only believe in Jesus as the Savior. And so that's what's happening in the culture. And the author of Hebrews then writes Hebrews, and he writes Hebrews under the assumption that Jesus Christ is the center of all things. And so when you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll see that it's what's called, fancy word for you, Christocentric. That is, everything in the book is going to point to and tie us to how Jesus is the central focus of literally all things. You're going to read in this book that it's full of what's called Christology, another fancy word that's going to lay out the definition for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done within the church. And the definition that the writer of Hebrews gives us is that the book that Jesus is both Lord and also Savior. He's not one or the other. He is, in fact, both. And so it's important that we kind of look at this for a minute as an introduction because the tension that exists in their culture is the same tension that exists in our culture. Uh, There are many in the church and outside of the church that would say that you can have Jesus as Savior, but you don't need Jesus as Lord. While Hebrews, on the other hand, he kicks this thing off, and he says some things that he knows what he's getting into. Like, he knows when he's writing this, like, he's about to cause a ripple effect in the church. And so whenever he starts off in the first four verses, and he says something like, uh, God once spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through the Son, what he's saying is, Jesus has the final word as Lord. And then just the next verse, he says this. He says that Jesus has come to provide purification for sin. So what is he saying in that? Jesus is not just Lord, but Jesus is also Savior. And he provides purification for sin. And then after he's done with that, he just took a seat. Well, why would he do that? Because he's the Lord and his job is done. And so all throughout the book, it's that as Lord, you need Jesus. As Savior, you need Jesus. The problem is, again, that people want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Well, why would they want that? 
Well, because it makes Christianity easy. It makes Christianity ultimately about you. Right? And so what happens whenever I believe that Jesus is only Savior and not Lord, I get the feelings of being safe. I get the feeling of knowing that there's a heaven that awaits me at some point. Uh, I get whenever I'm in a bad situation or a bad mood or we're in a tough season, then I can go to Jesus as my Savior. And so what kind of uh, that breeds in me, though, what it breeds in you and us as a culture is it gives us a posture that says, what can you do for me without ever asking the question, how should I be responding to you? That makes sense? And so we have to watch that. What do I get out of this relationship without ever asking, what can I give to this relationship? Not that your obedience saves you by any means, but there still should be a response to Jesus as Lord. And so seeing Jesus as only Savior will not change you. You're going to look the same. In 5, 10, 15 years from now, you'll look the exact same. And the reason that Seeing Jesus as Savior only doesn't change you is because it doesn't bring any confrontation to the relationship. There's nothing to come against you. There's nothing to cross you. There's nothing to kind of upset you. There's no authoritative word that you now have to respond to that reveals that, hey, I might actually need a Savior, the one I profess to believe in, by the way. And so Jesus as Lord brings a a confrontation to the relationship, I would argue, that actually lands us in intimacy with Jesus. You show me a Christian that lacks intimacy with the Lord, and I'll show you a Christian that only believes in him as Savior. Think about any relationship in your life. Now, you might, on first note here, I got to watch it because you sinners are going to be like, I want that, you know? Think about any relationship in your life. If they just said, yes, sir, and no, sir, to yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, dear, if all they did was the thing that you invited them to do, that would not be a relationship at all. That would be a slave-master relationship, perhaps, Right? If all you did was tell them what you needed and they only responded to you and there's no confrontation. Some of you have relationships in the room right now where you have maybe a significant other, maybe it's a spouse. Perhaps it's just a family member that avoid confrontation. They're confrontationally avoidant at all times. And so they, they're not willing to have the hard conversation. You feel like you're at a loss with them, don't you? You need that confrontation. You need them to cross you. A little bit of arguing in your relationship is actually good. Just fight for the right things. Some of y'all fighting for some crazy things up here on the way, like you weren't in the car on your way here. In a healthy relationship, you do not simply say, what can you do for me? But you're asking the question, what can I do for you? How can I submit myself over to you, right? There's some final things that exist in a healthy relationship. Like my wife, Andrea, is not bringing home another spouse and introducing me to them, right? Heaven forbid, right? There's some final things that happens, right? I'm not going to stay out all night and not call home and let her know where I'm at, not let her know where I'm at. There's some final things that happen. And so also, when you view Jesus as Lord and also Savior as Lord, he comes in not just with confrontation, but with some barriers around the relationship that says, you may not, under any circumstances, do that. And we need that because it leads us to a little bit of confrontation. Ultimately, it will drive for us and in us intimacy. Any relationship that you worth, that's worth bragging about, you've had some arguments with, yeah? You know that person. How do you know them? Because you've seen them at their best, and you've seen them at their worst. And there is intimacy that exists. You tracking with that? All right. There's a big idea then for you. Kind of set that up. The big idea then is Jesus is Lord over the angels because Jesus is Lord over everything. He's Lord over the angels because he's Lord over everything. I say I have three points, but I have four subpoints under the first two points. So it's really like 10 points. And so 
It's 11, it's 11 points, okay? So they don't let me preach for two weeks. This is what y'all get, all right? You get a sore throat pastor with too many points. What are angels? A little introduction to some angelology for you. Uh, who is Jesus? A little Christology for you. Uh, why does it matter? Which is what I would be asking if I were a skeptic or a Christian or a non-believer in the room. Why does any of this actually matter? All right, what are the angels? If you're ready, say ready. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 started off with, to which of the angels? To which of the angels? And so we got to kind of camp here for a minute to speak on what is angel. Let me kind of correct maybe some poor angelology, if I may, that might exist in the room, some poor theology that might exist in the room. So I'll start with just a question of what do you think about whenever you think about angels? What do you think about whenever you think about Angels, do you think about some crazy YouTuber with a cardboard sign standing on the corner, you know, saying the end is near with some crazy looking painting in the background behind them? Do you think about, I don't know, precious moments, some fat, chubby little blonde hair baby piece of glass your grandmama has on her nightstand? I don't, what do you, you know, what do you think about? Do you think about uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and the pastel paintings of Angels, they're all frail and like flowy hair and they're like touching each other's fingertips or whatever, you know? Like what are some of the things that you think about? If I had to guess, it's probably not the angels that we see in the scriptures. And so I'm gonna give you four points. We're gonna run straight through this and I'm gonna let the word of God defend the word of God itself. The first point is this, angels worship God. Angels first come on the scene for us anyway in the book of Genesis and we see there in the book of Genesis that there are good angels and there's bad angels. There's 10,000 times 10,000 angelic hosts. They're around the throne of God. They're worshiping the Lord. And then there's about a third, it says, of the angels that rebel against God. They did not want to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. So Satan leads them away and they rebel against who God is and what God is doing for them. And I need to stop there and remind you then that whenever the angels rebelled, and recall the call to confession that your pastor just took you through a minute ago. When the angels rebelled, they got no second chances. My gosh, we received mercy upon mercy upon mercy. The angels rebel, one and done. They are out, kicks them out, removes them from the kingdom. Book of Luke says, I saw Satan fall like lightning whenever he was removed from the kingdom of heaven. He got one chance, and it was over, and so they're worshiping. So what leads the angels to worship? It's the lordship of Jesus. They don't know him as a savior like we know them as a savior. They only know the lordship of Jesus. They rebel, and it is the lordship of Jesus that leads the angels to surround his throne and shout to the heavens, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so Revelation chapter 4 says this, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. That's a, there's a calm peace, a shalom in the kingdom. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, and they ain't going to be chubby babies, church. Full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Come on. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen and amen. I feel like we could take communion right now, yeah? From the beginning, though, church, from the beginning of the beginning, whenever that was, until now, you need to know there are millions of angels right now. 
A myriad of myriad, the scripture says, 10,000 times 10,000 surrounding the throne of God. What are they doing? They are honoring, they are worshiping, they're submitting to, they're enamored with the lordship of Jesus, not just his savior. They don't know him in that way like we do, but just his lordship, his holiness is enough to lead them to worship. The angels worship Jesus. Second thing then is the angels communicate the message of God or God's message. And so angels then, they show up. And they're not some pastel painting, right? Angels show up on the scene to deliver a message, and all of a sudden, people's shoes fall off their feet. You know what I'm saying? Like, they show up, and people fall down as though they're dead, the book of Revelation says. They don't show up and say, oh, what a cute little thing you got going on there. No, they're like, hold on, dude. Are you for us? or What can you do for me? He never lives in a relationship that says, what can I do for you? Why? Because he views himself as only Lord and does not have a framework then for the Savior, I would also say there are many in the church, when you only see Jesus as Savior, it's because you're not willing to sacrifice anything to follow him in any other way. Like, if you only see him as Savior, it's because you're not willing to surrender, not willing to give yourself over to him as Lord, thus revealing you want to be Lord. You want your throne and your kingdom, and let's just call it a control idol or say I'm type A. And at the end of the day, let's call it what it actually is, idolatry against the Lord and Savior. Right? Going to church, church, is not a sacrifice. This ain't a sacrifice. I don't care how bad your kids were this morning. I got four of them now. I get it. This ain't a sacrifice. Reading the Bible is not a sacrifice. Prayer is not a sacrifice. Those things will also not save you, no matter how well you think you do them. Surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ as your savior, that's what redeems. And that's it. His work in your place as your substitute, submitting to that. Why would I do that? Why would I surrender everything to this Jesus? Why would I do that? Because it's what he did for you. That's the gospel. That Jesus surrenders his lordship, come and walks among humanity in humility, living the perfect life, completely fulfilling the law, goes to the cross, dies in our place as our substitute. When he goes and dies, that's, yes, that's part of it, but he goes and dies because he's surrendering his lordship. The very thing that we try to hold on to so tight in our Western ideology, I'm in control. It's my body. I'll do me. I'll do whatever I want. Jesus goes to the cross and surrenders everything, and he's the rightful heir of all of it so that he can die in your place as your substitute and then resurrect to new life and then send you his very power. That is the gospel. Why should you submit to and follow after Jesus? Because there's no one else on the planet or in the history of humanity that's ever done that. There is not a God, there's not a school of thought, a philosophy, or a worldview that has a Jesus or someone else who's willing to surrender all their lordship for you. Oh, by the way, so he can present you in full glory in the kingdom and set you on the throne next to him. There is not a school of thought, church, that has that. That's a first thought from the Lord himself. Jesus is eternal. Psalm 45 through 6 is where Hebrews 1, 7 through 12 comes, through, comes from. Listen to this, speaking of the sun, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They work for him. They do what he says is what that means. But of the sun, church, of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, equating Jesus to Yahweh in the Old Testament as the same person, Kyrios in the Greek, same person. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, 
still speaking of Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Right? Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He never grows tired. He never grows weak. He never slows. He never stops the mission. He never ceases or fades in righteousness or in perfection or in glory. He is eternally and for always against sin and evil and the destructive things that they bring. He is simultaneously loving, kind, gracious, and merciful. And I would argue if you only see him as Lord, you miss out on all of that because you're going to spend your life trying to meet his expectations if you only see him as, yeah, you're going to spend your life trying to meet his expectations. If you only see him as Savior, then you're going to run in license, and you're going to think you don't have to do anything. So as you respond to him as Lord, he only increases in those ways forever and ever and ever and ever. And if you, as you begin to respond to him as Savior, then the mercy and grace of what I just said begins to permeate your soul and change you. Right? We have to see him as both, not just Savior, but also as Lord, if you do not, you cannot grow in intimacy. You cannot grow in relationship. There's not enough conflict there for you to have a healthy relationship. I would argue for the skeptic, you've nev- you would never enter into that relationship with anyone else. I would encourage you to pursue this relationship with Christ today. He's more than an appliance. He's more than a genie in a bottle for you. He is the Lord and the creator and sustainer of all things. And he loves us. It's incredible. He's unchanging. Last point for Jesus. Comes out of Psalm 110.1. I love this text. And to which of the angels has he ever said, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There's only one character in the Bible whose role remains unchanging, and that is Jesus. I'm going to say this next bit a little tongue-in-cheek to prove a point, but the reality is the angels are going to be out of work, okay? They're going to be filing for unemployment here before too long. Because some of those are messengers of the gospel, and they won't be sent out anymore to share the gospel. They'll simply just be sustained in the kingdom, sharing the gospel. That's what they're going to do. Some of the angels are there now, one of them anyway, protecting the Garden of Eden, but there will be no need for his protection. For the sword will be removed and the angel will be removed, and the Garden of Eden will simply be our existence. That cat's out of a job, yeah? Some are protecting the Christians from harm, but it, as the one-third of the angelic hosts are put to their demise and obliterated by the Lord's army and all of sin and all the hate and all the frustrating things in the world or cease to exist, those cats are going to be out of a job as well. For all they will know is the worship of the Lord. For the war will be over and they will simply be singing battle songs with us as we sing hymns with the angelic host at the face of our enemies. It's currently allowing the enemy to run loose on the earth for now, but there is a day coming where this unchanging Jesus will send out his forces, in every single one of your prayers, church, that have been brought on by the Holy Spirit anyway. Every prayer that you've prayed in the Spirit in accordance to what the Father wills for you will find its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And the angels will help usher us into that kingdom and usher that kingdom towards us. Right In biblical times, 
the king, whenever he won a battle, they would try to keep the other king alive, and they would pull that other king up front in front of all the soldiers that are victorious, and they would make that king lie on the ground, and the king who won would put his foot on the neck of that king that had lost, and man, the soldiers would just go nuts, right? Think about 300 when they're on the mountainside, right? They're just like, yeah, and the waves are crashing. Anybody? The waves are crashing. The boats are, you're like, are we allowed to, I don't know, that might be rated R. Am I allowed to watch that, Pastor? And they're half naked half the time. I get it. Yeah, it's okay. We all got some sin. So that's what it's going to be like, you know. There's a day, a very real day, where the Son of Man, the, the Son of God, the Lord God Almighty, will place his foot upon the neck of all of your enemies, of all of the harm that has come against you of all the depression, of all the anxiety, all the various forms of abuse that exist in this room, sexual abuse, drug abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, every single ripple effect of every sin that's ever been had in this created world, in that day, Jesus Christ himself will put his foot on his neck and he will stand in a great deal of victory. I wrote this morning in my notes, make no mistake, the angels might call you home but it's Jesus who supplies the footstool. Yeah. And the one that got me this week was, we just had a hard week as a, a, a family. I'll tell you about it in some other sermon. Um, I, I was sitting there thinking this week, like on one hand, we should be thankful for sin and for death and for Satan because were it not for those things, our Lord would not have a place to rest his feet. And neither would we. Because the New Testament tells us that we get seated beside him on a throne. And so there's a day coming where all of our enemies become our footstools. And so with that in mind, we should thank the Lord for our sorrows at time, yeah? There's a day coming where every prayer and every promise will find us yes and amen, complete in Christ Jesus. And so I feel like that is why it matters, but also I have a third point here, so I got to hit it. Why does it matter? What does this matter? Let me bring it home for you like this. I think the team, y'all can, if you can hear me, can come up. I'll close out quickly here. Why does this matter? <clears throat> I want to use a gospel-centered life. Uh, many of you in the room should now be familiar with this curriculum called Gospel-Centered Life. I know some of you uh, are not. If you're in a missional community, though, you should be walking through this for the most part. Uh, if you're not yet in an MC, this is a, a plug. You need to get plugged in uh, to a missional community. There's material that we're going through, and I love that material. For one, I've been doing it for 10 years but the material there that's presented to us is the same material that the author of Hebrews is kicking us off with right here. And so if you can uh, imagine with me for a moment that chart that comes in the first of that curriculum. Some of you all are doing this, yeah? yeah? Okay. About six of you. I think there's quite a bit more than you than, that are, than six that are doing this. If you remember on the introduction to that, uh, there's, a, there's a graph that's drawn there, right? And it says if you grow, as you grow in your understanding of God's holiness, you simultaneously grow in your understanding of your sinfulness, and then the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Did I nail that? Is that about right? Okay, still six of you, cool. And so what it's saying, though, is this. You don't, like, God does not get more and more holy. He doesn't get more and more glorious. He just is that thing. But you can grow in your awareness of his holiness. You can grow in awareness of his lordship. Simultaneously, as you do that, I would say at the same time that you're doing that, you grow in your awareness then of your own sinfulness. So you don't become a bigger sinner. You don't become more and more and more sinful. You just become more aware of who you actually are. You guys still tracking? 
with me on that? And as you grow in his, your understanding of his holiness, and you grow in your understanding of your sinfulness, well, my, 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 now the cross just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you're like, I need Jesus. And what's beautiful about that is all he's saying in that is the same thing that's happening here in Hebrews. He's saying as you grow in your understanding of his lordship, you simultaneously grow in your understanding of your need for a savior. That's what the whole curriculum is about. And so it's important that we understand why does this matter? Because you can't have just one without the other. You can't have Jesus as Lord and not Savior, and you can't have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. If you respond to Jesus as only Lord, you're going to die to legalism. You're going to beat yourself to death trying to measure up week in and week out and day in and day out. At the same time, simultaneously, at the same time, you have to have him as Savior because if you only have him as Savior, well, then you'll die to licentiousness. You'll just become a lazy Christian that does nothing, gets swept up in the world, and that too will also lead to death. And so the purpose of today's text is that you need both. You need his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness to reveal, I'm not those things, and I can't earn that thing. How do I get that thing? Oh, I get it through the Savior. As my sin abounds, his mercies abound all the more. By the way, they are new every single day. I wrote in here this morning, I believe, You need the word of the Lord to confront you so that the grace of the Savior can change you. That's the point that he's making, and that's what we're going to keep looking at in the book of Hebrews. Why don't you all stand with me, and we'll get ready for communion and offering. Every week we take communion together as a family. Uh, This is not a religious moment for us. This is a redemptive uh, moment for us. The Bible says as often as you gather, uh, and we gather rather often. And so as you come in here, you don't have to be a member to take communion. You can be a guest. We do ask that you have responded to this gospel call, uh, that you have responded to Jesus as Lord of your life and simultaneously as Savior of your soul. If you've not done that, let me invite you to do that. Today might be the first day you actually heard a sermon about Jesus. Uh, this is who he is. Uh, and every week, we got one trick up our sleeve, church. We're just going to preach about Jesus. And this is who he is. He is both Lord and Savior. And I would say the offer is on the table for you. And so as you come forward to take communion, for those of you that are in Christ, not that you nail it, not that you're getting it right all the time, because you can't. There's only one Lord, and it's him. Communion is a reminder of the gospel, a physical reminder, just as that angel, the seraphim angel, touched Isaiah's lips. He spoke the gospel to him in imagery. So also, Jesus, as Lord, has instituted this meal for us as an image, as a picture of the gospel for us. And so as you come forward, you'll see a piece of bread. You simply take a piece of that bread representing Christ's body broken in your place and you dip it in the cup, which represents Christ's blood spilt on your behalf, in your place, as your substitute. He did the one thing you could not do. He surrendered his lordship so that he could be your savior. That's what he's inviting you to do today. Surrender your lordship and view him as both Lord and savior. If you don't feel comfortable taking a piece of bread and dipping in the cup, we have packages up here for you as well. So you can take communion, partake in communion in that way. I'd encourage you to recall the call to confession from earlier and ask the Lord, where have I turned to idolatry and not you? And then upon letting him identify that for you, uh, repent, spend time confessing to him, turn to look to see him as the better, and then man, feast. Come and eat, partake with the king. Amen? Amen.